First, though, let me read the verses we'll be studying. We'll be focusing out of Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Hypocrites, Jesus says, aptly did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, saying, this people with its lips honors me, but their heart is far distant from me. But futilely do they show me reverence by teaching for teaching men's rules. Now let us pray. Our Father, we hear your Son, our Lord, scalding the religious experts as hypocrites, and we wince when we hear that. We would not want to earn that rebuke or hear that word from his lips ever. But we're made of the same substance as those Pharisees and those scribes, so we pray that you will drive home the truth of his words and the meaning and the impact of his words past all distractions and all defenses Teach us, counsel us, direct us. Exercise your lordship over us through your word. Bring us all to true worship that pleases and honors you, worship that is not in vain. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about worship, but you already knew that. Now, uh, an experienced sermon goer might expect me to start with the meaning of the English word. That's almost tradition. and Talk about what the English word means. But you know, it doesn't matter what the English word means, right? Because Moses didn't speak a word of English. And David didn't speak a word of English. And Jesus and Paul and Peter and the apostles didn't speak a word of English. It doesn't matter what the English word for worship means or what we think about worship. All that matters is what the Bible says, what God's word says about worship. And there actually are quite a few words for worship in the Bible. Uh, The Hebrew Old Testament has a number of words, and the Greek New Testament has a few. And just to roll them all together, the words associated with worship in the Bible have meanings uh, that express kneeling down before God, or bowing down, prostrating yourself before God, fearing God, revering God, paying homage to God, thanking God and praising God for His person and His works, seeking eagerly to know God and performing service and obedience of God. That's what the complex of words on worship means. So here's my thought provoker as we enter into the sermon today. Probably every person in every church today would say that he was there to worship God. But if we take Jesus' words here seriously, as we want to do, Most of them aren't worshiping God, and most of them don't even know what it means to worship God because they've received it not from the Word of God, but from the traditions and rules of men. So we want to find out what worship is. We want to ask the question, am I worshiping God in the way that pleases God? Can I even explain what actual worship is according to the Bible? Well, we're going to dive as deep as I can in one sermon, and let's see what the Lord is saying uh, about worship here. And to do that, first, Roman numeral one, we're going to take a step back and look at the big picture that's behind everything Jesus says, the biblical thought world that you have to stand on to take what Jesus says the way Jesus means it. So Roman numeral one, we're going to learn vital principles that bear on this. Principles. P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E-S. Beginning with the fact that God's Word shows us that there are two possible centers for worship. There are two possible centers for worship. 
true center and a false center. So let's start with the positive. Let's talk about the, the true center. And the true center of worship is the creator. That's what goes in that blank by number one. Creator. The true center is creator. Where are we going to turn to talk about that? I'm going to turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The easiest verse in your Bible to find, which is a good thing because it's very, very rich. So everybody turn there with me. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we read. Now, let me ask you, what was there? Well, this is a rhetorical question, by the way. Uh, I always warn you because I'm afraid somebody's shouting out an answer that I'm going to then have to correct, and I don't ever want to have to do that uh, to embarrass anybody. But a rhetorical question, what was there before this beginning? What, 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 what was there before the creation of the universe? And I'm pretty sure somebody would want to say, well, there was nothing. And I understand that answer. But there wasn't nothing, was there? What was before the creation of the universe? That's a real question. Well, God, yes. There was no created thing before the creation of the universe because when Moses writes God created the heavens and the earth, that's a a figure of speech meaning everything. He picks one pole and then the furthest opposite pole and everything in between. So nothing between the heavens and the earth existed before God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as I say, that doesn't mean there was nothing before the creation of the earth. God existed. Uh, Now, here we, we really can't talk about it much except in negatives. Because when I talk about before the creation of the heavens and the earth, I'm talking about before time, right? Because time is a creation. Time began when the universe began. So what's, what's the problem with talking about before time? Before is a time word. <laughs> before is a time word. We just can't even think about what, it, what, what happened before time. I mean, it, we, we can't not talk in those terms because that's our universe, But God exists above time. God is Lord of time. God is creator of time. So God was indeed active before we, the the, the scripture tells us some of what God was doing before the creation of the universe. I just have to use those words. Look at um, Isaiah 46.10 with me. Keep your place in Genesis, but look at Isaiah 46.10. This tells us something really very important about this creation. I think I'll just say that if I don't, I'm, I don't want to rush this sermon, and if I don't happen to get towards the end, then we'll just spill it over to next week. So Isaiah 46.10, what do we read? God says, this is who he is. He says, backing up to verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And then what does he say? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my goodwill. So with the first tick of the first clock, the first second on the cosmic clock, God's plan was already in place completely. God's plan was already designed. Creation was already defined. History was already decreed in the councils of God. So it's not like you might order a bunch of pieces from Amazon and like a lump of clay or whatever, and when you get it, you make something out of that and maybe have parts left over. Everything God created was part of his plan. 
And the only reason for anything existing was because of God's plan. It existed because it was part of his counsel. It existed the way that he wanted to create it for the reason for which he created it. So you see, everything that God created is Godward. Because it's like every atom, every molecule in the universe bears the stamp of God's lordship on it. Do you follow me? There is no such thing as a maverick molecule in the universe doing its own thing apart from the decree of God. It wouldn't exist apart from the decree of God. So God is Lord, as creator creates all of creation, and that's going to mean you and me as well. Godward. Everything depends on God and looks to God for its meaning and its existence. And we also know that before the creation of a world, uh, uh, Ephesians 1.4, he was choosing who would be in Christ. From the mass of fallen humanity, he was electing some to give to Christ to be saved. Now, when you approach that doctrine from creation, it just makes perfect sense. When you come at that doctrine filled with the ideas of the world and traditional fundamentalism that is not biblical, then you have to fight with it and try to make it mean something more comfortable. You come from creation, it makes perfect sense that God would be the Lord of salvation as he's Lord of all things. These are things God did before the creation of the universe, but then he created the universe with his plan always com- uh, already completely and fully in place. That applies to every created thing. Now, this is, this is absolutely vital for understanding the Bible, and it's absolutely vital for understanding what worship is about. What's worship going to be about? It's going to be about God. It's going to focus on God. It's going to look to God. In fact, turn to Exodus chapter 3. See a man who encountered God. And what impression God made on him. So Moses, without retracing his story heretofore, he's going through the desert, and suddenly he sees this sight. Verse 2, a blazing fire in the middle of a bush. The bush is burning, and yet it's not consumed. What did we learn in our science class about fire? It needs three things, right? It needs heat, it needs oxygen, and it needs what else? Fuel. But here's fire that is self-existing. Here's fire that that doesn't need fuel to exist. It is self-existing. And that's the representation of God. And how does that strike Moses? He goes aside to see this. And verse 4, God calls to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. Then he, God said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father. And we'll come back to this a little bit later, but let's stay where we are then. God calls Moses and he says, take the sandals off your feet. To approach God, we must approach God on his terms. Not the sandals that we've made, that's not just fine. We need to find out how God wants to be approached. And God gives his word of command to Moses and it strikes Moses with fear and with awe. And uh, so, now let's turn back to Genesis 1 then for a moment and read a little bit further and then we'll return to Exodus. So, God creates the heavens and the earth. Earth is formless and void. He hasn't shaped it into what he is exactly going to make it into yet. And there's darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. Verse 3, then creation said, please make light. And there was light. Is that how your Bibles read? 
Why did light exist? Because God decreed that it would exist. God spoke his word and light exists. So the only reason there's light in the universe is because God willed there. God created light. God commanded the existence of light. You say that's very interesting about creation. Well, but that's true of physical creation. What does scripture say a person who comes to Jesus Christ is? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. And so how exactly does that happen? Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Paul is talking about the glory of his gospel ministry. The fact that some don't see it, he says in verse 5, if it is veiled, it's veiled in those who are perishing, where Satan has blinded their minds, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But some do see that glory. How does that happen? Well, our part, Paul says, verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's why you don't get up and tell long stories about yourself and your thoughts and your feelings. You preach Christ to lead someone to know God. A pastor must do that. But then read the next verse, verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So just as light existed in the dark universe by the creative word of God, so light exists in the darkened heart of a sinner by the creative word of God, by the sovereign grace of God. And what I'm wanting you to see here is that our existence as created beings depends on God. We exist because of the work of God. And our existence as recreated beings, as born-again men and women, also equally exists by the grace and the power and the creative word of God. We didn't make ourselves born the first time. We don't make ourselves born the second time. Creation didn't ask God to turn on the light. We don't ask God to turn on the light until he does turn on the light and we begin seeking him. So we are dependent on God. We are utterly utterly Godward, whether as created beings or as saved beings. That's what I'm meaning to show you fundamentally here. It centers on the Creator. So now, turn back to Exodus 20. You're immediately thinking, ah, that's the Ten Commandments. Indeed it is. So Exodus 20. I, I remember 20 by, there's two tables of Ten Commandments. Two times ten is 20. I can do that math. That's about the extent of it, but... So the Ten Commandments, what do we read here? Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Let me reinflect that. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and so forth. So the point here is God reveals himself by name 
the creator and the redeemer, and he says, I am to be your only God. You don't make something to worship. You have me and you have me alone. With one sweep, God eliminates all other pretenders and all other competition, says it doesn't matter. He's a jealous God. He won't have any rivals. And we are not free to create for ourselves object of worship. And not only not free, we are positively forbidden to make for ourselves objects of worship. As creation looks to God and depends on God, so we as worshipers look to God, depend on God, and on God alone. God our creator, God our savior. He positively demands that there be no other objects of worship, no created beings as worship. Now, when you think of it, of course, it's wicked, but it's also nonsensical. Why worship something as ultimate that for its very existence depends on who? God. Worship God. Worship God alone, God says. So the true center of worship is the Creator. Probably not too hard. You've probably already filled in the second blank. What's the false center of worship? The creature. Any creature. Any created being. Turn to Genesis 3 with me. Genesis 1, 2, 3. Turn there with me, please. And you know what's happening here. This is in the garden. There's the forbidden fruit. The woman just happens to find herself by that fruit. And the serpent is there to dialogue with her. I'm just going to cut to the chase here. She paraphrases God. She kind of expansively quotes God. You shall not eat from it. True. You shall not touch it. God didn't say that. Lest you die. And the serpent is right there with, you shall not surely die. Now look, what's happening Here's the word of the creator who made the woman, the man, and the tree. And he says, don't eat that tree and you'll die. And what does the serpent do? He interposes himself between the woman and her creator. And without saying it in so many words, he arrogates to himself the authority of the creator. And says, the creator's wrong about the thing he created and you, his creation. I'll tell you the truth. You eat it and you won't die. So he right there is taking the place of God. But wait, there's more. Look at the next words. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he says, in fact, so far from dying, what will happen is you will take God's place. You will become ultimate. You will become the one who defines for yourself what you feel is wrong, what you feel is right. You will be the authority. The the center of authority and worth in the universe will shift in that act from God to you. And that's really why God doesn't want you. Now, of course, it's impossible that that could happen. But she buys it. She's convinced that that's exactly what's going to happen. And so in that act of taking the fruit, she is trying to take God's place. She is trying to become ultimate. That's what she was sold on. Well, that was a long, long time ago, right? That has no impact on us today, right? Old ancient history. Oh, if only. Turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. I just have to trust that in the absence of hearing flipping pages, there's being tapped phone screens. All right, Romans chapter 1. 
Let's lift this out here. Romans 1.18, Paul has said that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But then he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So all men everywhere are exposed to God's truth. There's nobody who has no access to God's truth. And all men everywhere have the same response to God's truth. Naturally, we're all sons of our mother. We're all represented in Adam, and we all want to be as God. So confronted with the truth of this sovereign creator God, the infinite personal creator God, we suppress that truth so that we don't hear what it would say to us. We suppress it in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them since the creation of the world. His attributes of power and... and, um, His divine nature are clearly seen. So, end of verse 20, they are anapologetus. They are without apology. They're without defense. They're without excuse. Now, look, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. Well, that's what worship is. Remember, it's to glorify and thank God. To lift Him up for His excellence and thank Him for His blessings. But they don't do that. Why not? Well, because they're in that place. They don't want God in that place, so they didn't glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts. You say, futile? That sounds familiar. Yes, that's exactly what Jesus said the hypocrites were doing. Futile worship, pointless worship, worship that never passes the ceiling. Became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And listen, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image and likeness. Oh, we just heard those words in Exodus 20 of corruptible man and so forth. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among men among them. And then verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and here it is, worshiped and served what? The creature, rather than who? The creator, who is blessed forever. So God gave them over to dishonorable passions, and boy, don't we see that today. People destroying themselves in various perversions, and now even destroying their bodies because of perverse desires. Is that not just this verse lived out? But you see, what that is, is that is an outworking of false worship. It's an outworking of idolatry. It's, I mean, could you say it more vividly than to say, I don't accept the authority of my created body. God created my body a man, but I get to say what I think it is. How more could you say that I worship myself, I don't worship the Creator, I rebel against the Creator? But but that is going on universally in one way or another. So there's only one actual center of worship we see then, and that's the Creator, the actual infinite personal Creator revealed in the Bible alone. That's the only true center of worship. The false center of worship is the creature. And the creature represented by the world, the flesh, the devil, always tries, always competes, always waves shiny things and distractions to get our eyes off the one true creator God. So letter B then, having seen these principles flowing from that truth, there's only one actual absolute that bears on worship. There's only one actual absolute, letter B in your outline, 
Only one actual absolute. Let's see how it's stated in Deuteronomy 6. Turn there with me. That's the fifth book in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sixth chapter in that book. Ironically, words that would be held dear by the very people Jesus is calling hypocrites and false worshipers. They would go right to this verse and say that's the center of their faith. And Jesus says, and your worship is futile, it's vain, it's hypocrisy. Well, we'd best pay close attention, hadn't we? Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Here's the baseline. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Okay, so that's the fact. There is only one God, and his name is Yahweh. I'm actually going to return to that in just a second. But there's only one God. His name is Yahweh. And then he says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Doesn't that just make sense, though, when you think about it, besides being morally and spiritually right? He's the creator. Everything else is created by him and for him. So who do I love ultimately? in all of creation. Things he created are the one who created them. And that's what I'm being called to here, to love God with ultimate love. But then what does that involve specifically? Uh, Because I know somebody would read that and spin off and say, ah, yes, I I need to do what I think of as love and I need to build up feelings of love in my heart and, and love God as I conceive of him. And oh no, wait a minute. It's not God as you conceive of him. He has a name. His name is Yahweh. We'll talk about that in just a second. And not just any way, but look at the next words. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. All the time, everywhere, he goes on to say. So worship has as its proper object the one and only God. It's characterized by love for this God. And it's directed by the words of this God. Only so can we worship the real God on his terms and not a false God on our terms. Are you with me? Somebody said, oh, thank you. Okay, good. So now I can go on. Now, with this in mind, Yahweh, your God, go back to Exodus 3 with me, where we were just a second. I, I promised we'd be back, or threatened we'd be back, depending on how you look at it. Exodus chapter 3, this is where Moses encounters Yahweh in the, in the bush, And he says in verse 5, God does, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. See, in doing this, God makes himself specific. I'm not just any old God or a God you're just going to discover for the first time in all of history. I have a history. I was the same God Abraham worshipped and who spoke to Abraham, the same God Isaac had a relationship with, the same God Jacob had a relationship. And this is, in effect, tracing his history back to the beginning of Genesis. I am that God, he's saying. And so uh, Moses hid his face. Uh, A good response. (laughs) And so, but Moses says later, go down to verse um, 12, 13, suppose the people you're sending me to ask for your name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So even as the flame of fire just blazes without dependence on anything, so he is who he is without dependence on anything. He doesn't need anything. Nothing controls him. Nothing determines him. He's self-determined. He is who he is. 
And he says that to God, I, uh, to Moses, I am. And, and the name Yahweh is formed from that Hebrew verb. The verb is Hayah. Yahweh is formed from that verb, Yahweh. The God of your fathers. He is that God. So he's that specific God. Now, now turn to chapter 13 in Exodus. Moses has since been to Israel and got, uh, sorry, been to Egypt and gotten Egypt. Hello. How about if I start that whole thought again? Moses has been to Egypt and gotten Israel out of Egypt. And they're meeting with God and walking with God in the desert. And at this point in chapter 33, 18, Moses prays, show me your glory, the full radiance and wonder of who you are. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Like I said, you come to the doctrine of election from Genesis 1, it just makes perfect sense. God shows compassion and grace to whom he shows compassion and grace. He's ultimate. You cannot see my face, he says, for no man can see me and live. And so... While, verse 30, uh, 22, my glory is passing by, I will cover you in a cleft of the rock with my hand. So in the next chapter, indeed, Yahweh, verse uh, 5, descends in a cloud and stood there with him. And you could translate it, he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. He, Yahweh, proclaimed the name of Yahweh, just as he said. And Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, Compassion and, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth and so forth. And how does Moses respond to this revelation? Verse 8, he, bow, he makes haste to bow low toward the earth and to worship. Well, so there it is. We are called to give all of our love above all to this one God, Yahweh. And that that love is a response to his word. It's a response. We don't start. We don't initiate. We're not first in any way. He initiates. He opens himself and reveals himself. And so here Moses, in the face of the revelation of God, worships. He worships because God has revealed himself. His worship is a humble, falling on your face, adoration and worship of God who has just revealed himself. It's a response to the revelation of God. That's what worship is. This one specific God. And anything else is an idol. And any other kind of worship is false worship. Any worship not according to God's word, any worship not directed to this one infinite personal God of Scripture is false worship. So, we either look to God, our Creator, for wisdom and life and meaning, or we look to the creature which is to reject God and try to find wisdom and life and meaning somewhere in creation. True worship looks to God the Creator, not to the creature. This is absolutely critical. We'll never understand what worship is if we don't get this down really firm and really deep. Second then, let's look at precedence. P-R-E-C, not precedence like Biden, Trump, and so forth. Precedence, P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T-S, for the practice of worship, because the Bible doesn't just give the principles and the teaching. The Bible gives illustrations in action of, you know, just to be absolutely plain, how to do it and how not to do it. And there's vivid illustrations of both, as we shall see. 
So first then, let's look at how the Bible sets out precedence positively. This is what to do. This is what worship is supposed to be like. And I just want to trace one thread here that, that makes a, a point very clear. Turn to Exodus 25. You're right near there. So turn back to 25. Unless you're in your phone, in which case you're in equal distance to everything. So Exodus 25. And God is, has, has revealed many of his laws, and now he's going to talk about the creation of this. He's talking about the creation of this tabernacle, which would be where he would dwell and where he would reveal himself to Israel. And he's extremely particular about exactly how this be built. And look at what he says in verse 40, Exodus 25, 40. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. He did not tell Moses to get some good ideas and be creative. He said, do exactly what I show you in the mountain. I have um, a template, and I will show you that template, and you follow that template. So now turn to chapter 26, verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan which you have been shown in the mountain. Okay, uh, there's a theme forming here. Turn to chapter 39 now and verse 42. Chapter 39 and verse 42. How did it all turn out? Did Moses do as he was told? Thus, according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did in all their service. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it just as Yahweh had commanded, so they had done. Then Moses blessed them. So they set it up. Look at the, uh, the next chapter in verse 19. Spread the tent over the tabernacle just as Yahweh had commanded. Look at verse 32. They entered the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. So they are approaching God as God has commanded. And what's the result of that? Well, it's glorious is what it is. It's glorious. Look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So here's something that no architect and no builder can do. You cannot make the glory of God present. But approach God as God calls us to approach, and God is met. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. But we only draw near to God when we draw near to God, what? On His terms. And then He draws near to us. The cloud covers the tent. The glory of Yahweh fills the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelled on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. That, that is a glorious, glorious picture, is it not, of how to worship God. Now, we see a similar thing in Leviticus. And we could look at a lot of verses. I'm just going to show you a line. Leviticus is the next, uh, the next chapter, which goes on to talk in more detail about God's laws and about God's worship. But look at Leviticus chapter 8, talking about uh, consecrating the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Not ironic priesthood, it's an Aaronic priesthood, although there are many ironies to come, but, but uh, Aaron, the, the first high priest, Yahweh speaks and he, he says he wants them consecrated. Verse 4, so Moses did just as Yahweh commanded. Well, there's that theme again. And verse 5, Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that Yahweh has commanded to do. And verse 9, 
placed the turban on his head and the golden plate and the holy crown, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And, and you can see this again and again through this chapter. That phrase, you could trace it down. It just occurs again and again through the chapter. Now turn to chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent. The whole congregation came near and stood before Yahweh. Moses said, This is the thing which Yahweh has commanded you to do, that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. And so uh, they, he calls Aaron to come close, verse 7, just as Yahweh has commanded. And they offered the offering, verse 10, just as Yahweh had commanded. And the same thing continues through down to verse 21. The breast and the right thigh Aaron waved as a wave offering before Yahweh, just as Moses had commanded. And he blessed the people. And verse 23, the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. So they laid out these offerings just as Yahweh had commanded. The glory of Yahweh appears. And what happens next? Verse 30, uh, 24, fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And all the people saw it and shouted and fell on their faces. Well, I dare say so. <laughs> I think that's a very appropriate response. That might have been, must have been quite a noise. They, they all screamed at the top of their lungs and hit the deck. And with, faced with the, with the glory of Yahweh and this fire presumably coming out from the holy place, coming out from God himself and consuming. They didn't have to light the fire for them at all. God consumed it. So this is a picture of positive worship. What to do. God says, this is how I want to be approached. And this is this picture he's painting in Old Testament worship. And they approach him according to that picture, according to that process. And when they do that, God meets them. The real living God meets them visibly and hotly and palpably. There's God there, the God they worship. They respond to his word with, obe with obedience and faith. And he comes and he shows up. Well, that's the positive example. Is there a negative example? You know, we're right there. <laughs> we are right there. The fire has come out and consumed these offerings. Now let's talk about the negative example. Because uh, Aaron's oldest and his second oldest, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, they're priests, and they're there. And we don't know a great deal. We don't know anything about exactly what's going on in their mind. But they, well, let's just read verse 1. Chapter 10, took their respective fire pans and put fire in them. Then they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. Now, having seen all these verses that talked about doing what God commanded, does that jar you? This is the first time we read which God had not commanded. Heretofore, it's been just as God commanded, just as God commanded, just as God commanded. And here they do something that God did not command. And how does God respond? Does he say, you know, this is not exactly what I had in mind, but it's close. It's so close. And I know you meant well. And I respect creativity. And so, but let's try a little harder, you know. Let's, no, God doesn't do that at all. Verse 2, fire comes out from the presence of Yahweh. Oh, just like before. Not exactly. <laughs> comes out before the presence of Yahweh and consumes them and they died before Yahweh. So friends, here's a vivid picture of what God thinks about people worshiping him according to their designs and their desires and their ideas. Because God doesn't change. He has not changed his mind. He still sees it exactly the same way. 
when a creature says, I'm going to define for myself what I think worship is and who I think God is, this is exactly how God sees it. Verse 3, then Moses said to Aaron, it is what Yahweh spoke, saying, this is heavy, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And that's exactly what the sons did not do. They did not treat him as holy, and they did not glorify him, because they did not respect his word. And so they decided, they thought that they would be creative, and instead, they were cremated. It's true, though, and in the most remarkable way, because then they go, and verse uh, 5, they carry them still in their tunics. So the fire burns them, but not their uniforms. And somebody else gets to wear those uniforms. Do you think that was a sobering experience? I dare say it was. I dare say it was. So this this is a vivid picture and meant to be of how serious God is about being worshipped on His terms, in His way, according to His Word, because anything else is not worship, it's idolatry. And so uh, there's a, uh, shortly after that, drunkenness is prohibited, so there's a possibility that they were drunk. If they weren't drunk, uh, I mean, I had a, I had a friend who, uh, before he knew Christ, he uh, he was heavy into drinking and heavy into drugs. And, and I remarked once that I, I didn't know what it felt like to be drunk. And he said, well, you're not missing anything. He said, the first thing that happens when you get drunk is you become an instant expert on everything. Well, if I apply that here, it understands what happened. It explains what happened to their judgment. And they decided to approach Yahweh their way. And Yahweh immediately showed what he thought about that. So actual worship of the actual God is focused on God. It is responding to his self-revelation. That's what real worship is. Responding to the actual God as he reveals himself in his word. It's defined by God. It's directed by God. Or even put it more, more briefly, positively, actual worship is about God. Negatively, it's not about me. Real worship is all about God. It's not all about me. I remind you, possibly apocryphal, but I heard the story of a man after a worship service said to the pastor, you know, I didn't really care for the worship service today. And the pastor said, well, you know, that's all right. It it wasn't for you. Are we here to worship God or to get God to serve us in the way that we think he should on our terms? True worship is focused on God, not on me. And, and uh, as an extra bonus, not only is it directed by God, but true worship is enabled by God. Turn to Philippians 3. True worship is enabled by God. I admire I admire women who can multitask. If, you, if you're watching me closely, you just saw me freeze for a second. That's because I, I had a thought and I couldn't turn pages while I had a thought. <laughs> I'm a monotasker. So now Philippians chapter 3. In verse 2, Paul says, Beware the dogs. Yikes, is that ironic? That is ironic. Who's he referring to when he talks about the dogs? The Judaizers. And Judaizers call Gentiles what? 
dogs. <laughs> he calls them dogs. Beware of the evil workers, and then a little wordplay. Beware of the mutilation. Now, the wordplay is that the Greek word there is katatome, and the Greek word for uh, circumcision is peritome. Peritome means literally cutting around for obvious reasons. Katatome means cutting off, cutting down. So he calls, they call themselves the circumcision. He calls them the excision, the, the, the cutting off, the cutting down. So be, I mean, he's, this is strong. Oh my, oh my goodness. Oh, land sakes, he's not being dainty and nuanced and winsome. Where did he get that from? I think he got it from Jesus. <laughs> but he calls them the, the mutilation, and he says, for we are the circumcision. And it's not about the flesh. He goes on to say, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So this is worship that gives itself the worship of God on God's terms, according to God's Word. And when he says no confidence in the flesh, that means the absolute refusal to lean on tradition and human thoughts and what Jesus calls the rules of men. That's worship in the flesh, and that's what they're doing. They're wanting to impose tradition on these Christians, and Paul calls them the, the codicision, the, the uh, mutilation, and he says, we don't worship that way. To worship in the Spirit of God is to worship according to the Word of God, in a heart regenerated by the Spirit of God. And no outward form can do that. Sprinkling water on a baby or dunking it on an adult can't make the Spirit of God come into a, a person's heart. That's a sovereign act of the grace of God. And that's the only way that we can worship. Otherwise, we will worship creatures along with the other creatures. We'll be idolaters like everyone else. The only way to be broken from that is the sovereign grace of God giving new birth, new life, the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in new hearts. And in that way, he says, we worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And he gets very specific about that. It doesn't matter about your pedigree. It doesn't matter about anything. It matters about whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. And in Christ, and only in Christ, can we worship God in a way that pleases God, you see. Well, I think that I'm going to, to leave off here and take up next week in the next part, which will be Matthew chapter 15. But let me just revisit it briefly and, and, and wrap this up, and then we'll come back next week and look at it and apply what we've been talking about this week. So Matthew 15, Jesus says, hypocrites, Aptly did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, saying, This people with its lips honors me, but their heart is far distant from me. But futilely did they show me reverence by teaching for teachings men's rules. So these were people who were sure that they were doing it the right way, but the way they were doing it was the result of the accretion of centuries of human ideas piled on human ideas piled on human ideas to the point where, as Jesus shows, they, their, their human ideas would actually command someone to disobey God's word. And that was the worship they were giving God. But they were sure they were worshiping God. What does he say? With their lips they honor me. Yes, they say fine things about me. They'll say the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hero Israel, Yahweh is one. Yahweh is our Lord, Yahweh is one. They'll say that but their heart's far distant. And what's the mark of a distant heart? A heart that does not do what we just saw, does not approach the actual God according to the revelation and word of the actual God. That's what makes them hypocrites. That's what makes them phonies. 
leaning on men's words and men's rules. And, and what are they doing? What's the exact situation in which they're doing this? And they're coming and they're complaining about whether the apostles aren't keeping their traditions. What's the, actual, the, the actual uh, situation? The Word of God incarnate is standing right there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We read in John, but we also read in John, he came to his own, and his own what? Did not receive him. But they're going to worship God, but they'll reject the word of God. So here's an actual question. Can you worship God if you reject the word of God? No, you can't. And that's exactly what he's speaking about. So we'll look at that more deeply in an application next week, talking about what Jesus says and the impact it has on our worship as Christians today and it needs to have, and the threat of tradition uh, to that as well. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, for its power and its clarity. Oh God, how gracious of you to reveal yourself to us. How gracious of you to speak, to, to move aside the veil so that we can see you as you really are in a way that we can understand. But at the same way, it's gracious, it's wonderful, but it also puts on us the burden of response. And we always do respond. We respond in love and faith and submission or we respond in some kind of rejection and some kind of disobedience and some kind of transgression. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God will use these words and these truths and will show every person here who knows the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly how to worship Him, that we might be a worshiping church united in worshiping you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in a way that is not vain and futile, in a way that does honor you and does please you. And I pray too for those who've come in who are lost. They either thought they knew you, but now see they don't, or they never really gave it serious thought, but they see how important it is now. Pray that the Spirit of God will bring those hearts to submit before you, submit in repentant faith in Jesus Christ so that they might have life eternal in your kingdom. Now as we turn to celebrate communion together, we pray that you'll draw near to us as we draw near to you, that you'll bless this time and deepen our love for the Lord Jesus Christ accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.